The fourth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes says, Where one alone may be overcome, two together can resist. A three-ply cord is not easily broken. We are created physically connected to our mother, and our destiny is the communion of saints, the fulfillment of Holy Mother Church. Yet isolation and loneliness are becoming rampant in our world. The first form of asceticism that we will explore in Physically Spiritual is growing in relationships. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. As we get started, let's go through our regular housekeeping. If you want to support all the work we're doing here at Awaken Catholic, join the Awaken Nation. Go to awakencatholic.org forward slash donate to join the nation. As members of the nation, you'll have access to bonus content uh, from different shows, and you will also be able to now support a show host. When you sign up for the nation, you could select Physically Spiritual, and part of your donation every month will go to the show host of your choice. Also, if, if you want to go deeper with Awaken Catholic, consider getting the Awaken Catholic app. Go to the awakenapp.io. It's the best way to watch or listen to the shows. You also have access to a great online community uh, that is centered around all the content that's coming out here at Awaken Catholic. And here at Awaken Catholic, we are also partners with the Hollow app. The Hollow app is a Catholic meditation app to help you find peace and grow in your spiritual journey. To support us through our sponsor, Hollow, go to hollow.app forward slash awaken. And finally, if you want to get access to any of my writings or, or anything else I publish, go to becominggift.com. And if you want support applying any of the ideas from my show, you can find my coaching and spiritual direction practice there. So this week we are beginning on our track toward understanding asceticism from a new perspective. Uh, so we're going to be talking about growing in relationships as a form of asceticism. Uh, if you want to go back to the intro to asceticism, you can go to episode four of season two. But as I'm starting, I'm already using a weird word, asceticism, ascesis. The Catechism of the Catholic Church defines ascesis as the practice of penance, mortification, and self-denial to, to promote greater self-mastery and to foster the way of perfection by embracing the way of the cross. So penance, mortification, or self-denial, really three ways of saying the same thing, right? How can we deny ourselves those things that are, that are where, where we're weak, where we have struggles, uh, where we need healing, in order to come more and more communion, in communion with God? So we're going to take a special approach to how we talk about asceticism here on Physically Spiritual. In that first episode, episode four of season two, I talked about the idea of health and asceticism. Are health and asceticism contradictory or are they complementary? And I have an image I want to show you of these two circles. Uh, so in, in that first episode on asceticism, we talked about uh, this idea of the cult of the body, and when, we, when we're too focused on health, on one extreme, on the far right of that image, uh, there is the idea of the cult of the body. 
But on the other hand, you can take asceticism to another extreme, and we might call this rigorism. There, there are a whole uh, grouping of different heresies in the history of the Church that have fallen into rigorism, which is uh, an ascetical practice to the point of damaging the body, to the point of, of an overemphasis on our effort and an underemphasis on what God's doing in our spiritual life. So we want to seek a virtuous mean in our, in our approach for asceticism. The virtuous mean, um, now there's space within that virtuous mean for doing activities that are healthful, uh, that aren't necessarily ascetical, and there's also space in that virtuous mean for doing practices that are ascetical but not necessarily for your health. But there's also, I think, a middle ground in there where asceticism, this practice of, of self-denial, of mortification, and what's healthy for us meet. And I have that, that uh, the, the, the uh, health circle is red, and then the, uh, the asceticism circle is blue, and then there's that place where they meet in the middle, and that's purple. So this is where I'm going to try to focus in on these sections on asceticism. What are the areas that we can, uh, we can do to both simultaneously become healthier, right, heal our nature, become more and more what God's intended us to be on a natural level, and at the same time, mortify our flesh and our passions in order to free ourselves to receive God's grace and become supernaturally what God's calling us to be, to become holy. Um, so all of this we're going to focus also in the context of our story, right? And anything we, we deny ourselves of, any mortification, any penance we choose, should be in the context of our story, of our history, right? So a penance that makes sense for me might not make sense for you, right? We're going to talk in a few episodes about the idea of food, and we're also going to talk about the idea of fasting, right? If, if uh, maybe an eating disorder is part of your history, <laughs> fasting probably isn't a good idea, uh, and, and then it, maybe part of your story is, is a medical condition where you tend to get low blood sugar. Well, in that case, fasting isn't a good idea. Um, for other people, though, fasting may be extremely healthful, helping them lose weight, uh, regulate high blood sugar, uh, maybe even have a, a clearer thinking or, or, or something like that. So each one of these decisions we make about uh, ascetical practices need to be in the context of our story. And then the, the third uh, principle we're going to use is the Pareto principle. We're going to focus on the 80%, or we're going to focus on the 20% of healthful activities that get us 80% of the results. If you've ever traipsed around the internet, um, looking at, at different, um, different websites about uh, health or, or life hacks or, or different practices of, of improving our, our body, uh, you're going to find a thousand different ideas Things as odd as red light therapy, essential oils, um, the use of plant medicine, right? There's there's a, a thousand different ways that that people are exploring to heal, and to to um, to become more and more the people they want to be. Uh, but so much of that isn't necessarily for everyone, and a lot of times we we'll, we can get lost in the details and and all the different ideas and possibilities out there, at the expense of focusing on the core. Like, what's the foundation of health? What are those, those core things that we need to focus on to become who we're called to be, to become uh, more and more what God designed us to be? Right? So you might be thinking right away, relationships. What do, what do relationships have anything to do with asceticism? And I think relationships are one of those things that um, almost get, they get, they're uh, almost too obvious of a place to start. Um, but they really are foundational to our health. So here is a quote uh, from St. Augustine 
that actually uh, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, uses when he's commenting on the 14th chapter of John. He says, and Augustine says, walk like this human being and you will come to God. It is better to limp along on the way than to walk briskly off the way. For one who limps on the way, even though makes just a little progress, is approaching his destination. But if one walks off the way, the faster he goes, the further he gets from his destination. What does this mean for us? In the context of asceticism, it means that that we want to test everything in accord with the teachings of our faith. There's a thousand different things you could do to become healthier, and you could put a lot of energy into them, but if it's not in accord with what God's revealed to us in Revelation and what we know through the doctrines of our church and, and the moral teachings of our church, then we're not actually getting closer to God, we're walking further away from God. So it's worth taking the time from the start um, to make sure we're on the right path, to test all of this by the truths of our faith, um, and also, I think, bouncing ideas off other people. We don't approach ascetical practices in a vacuum, right? We need to uh, make them in the context of, of, of community and seek mentorship and guidance. So we need to start off making sure we're, we are founded uh, square, squarely within what our church teaches. And then finally, as we uh, are thinking about these ascetical practices, there, there's an, an essential uh, precept of theology and philosophy that we need to remember. So St. Thomas Aquinas, when he starts the Summa Theologia, he says, Grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. Natural reason should minister to faith as the natural bent of the will ministers to charity. Grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. And so as we're, we're doing these ascetical practices, the goal isn't to, like, destroy our body, to obliterate our health. Uh, the goal is to heal our body, to become the person God has designed us to be. He says natural reason should minister to faith. Natural reason should minister to faith, meaning I'm, I'm thinking about how I should live my life in order to dispose myself to the gift of faith that God wants to offer me. So, so this is how we're going to approach all these topics about asceticism. Um, so here we have the first one on relationships. So grace builds on nature. So let's start talking about nature. First, in the, the inter- introduction to the show, I made the comment that our world is getting further and further away from being connected. That loneliness and disconnection are becoming um, just a, an endemic in our, in our culture. A 2019 study by YouGov revealed that 27% of millennials reported that they have no close friends, and 30% of millennials report that they have no one to confide in. Now, you may say 27%, well, that's on the lower end, it's less than half, but just imagine no close friends, no one to confide in, almost one in three has no one to confide in. It's inevitable in life we're going to get to a point where we're completely overwhelmed, uh, where we we absolutely need other people uh, in order to persevere, in order to be the best version of ourselves. That means one in three millennials are in a place uh, where they don't have that. It's no wonder that, that things like suicide are on the rise in our culture. Uh, some studies suggest that loneliness disposes the person to spend more time in fi- a fight-or-flight state, which can cause inflammation in the body. And inflammation is an underlying cause in every chronic disease. 
right? So, so this isn't like uh, an optional thing if we want to flourish, right? Um, you know, some people do end up living it like a, 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 in, as hermits, but that's really a supernatural calling. Like if, if you read the lives of uh, the desert fathers and mothers of the church, right? There were, there were people in early Christianity who went out into the desert uh, to, to find God. Uh, if you read their writings, though, all the time they're talking about their conversations with each other, right? So even though they went out into the desert to be alone and find God, they were constantly relating to one another, whether they had a, a mentor or people went to them to, to get advice or they just found reasons to be with one another, to support one another. So right from the beginning, these people who left the world to find God were were also supporting one another. And, and this uh, this impulse to go out of the world and uh, find the Lord ultimately uh, found a more perfect form in monastic life, right? That these people would form communities with a rule where they lived together and sought the Lord together. So to, to go off alone isn't a natural state. It's actually a supernatural state. It's a supernatural calling, meaning that God provides a special grace in order to flourish in that place. It's not normative to be alone, and it's not recommended unless you have that specific calling. And oftentimes, it's only for a limited amount of time. So a a 2019 article in Scientific American states, loneliness has been estimated to shorten a person's life by 15 years, equivalent to the impact of being obese or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's almost a pack a day. A recent study revealed a surprising association between loneliness and cancer mortality risk pointing to the, the role loneliness plays in cancer's course, including responsiveness to treatment. <laughs> loneliness could shorten our life up to 15 years, like being morbidly obese or smoking almost a pack of cigarettes a day. Right? That's, that's mind-boggling that it's this important to us. On the flip side, researchers that look into people that live the longest, right? These people that live the longest in the world are, are sometimes living in what we call blue zones. These blue zones are, are people that, that where their average lifespan of the people that live there is significantly higher than the worldwide average. People in these blue zones across the board, although a lot of other lifestyle factors differ, like, like diet, um, they, what they all have in common is they live extremely connected lives. These people uh, grow up in community, stay in community, and, and find ways to have significant and meaningful connection um, on a regular basis. So, so if we want to have this kind of flourishing, this kind of longevity, to live a long life in service of the Lord, we absolutely need to be connected to each other in meaningful ways. How does this make sense in light of the way our body works? Like I said in, in the introduction, we're literally born connected to someone else. We're conceived in our mother's womb, literally physically connected to her with her umbilical cord. Um, I've heard it said that the first tissue that forms in the baby is cardiac tissue. It's the heart. And that the the baby's heart rate syncs up with the mother's heart rate. So the mother's heart rate becomes the baseline or the starting point for the baby's heart rate. Imagine that, that synchronicity between mother and baby, that even their heart rates sync up, right? It's completely dependent on mother for nurturing. And, and, and the sac the baby's in uh, isn't like loose around the baby. It actually hugs the baby, right? So the baby is, is, is like constantly and holistically hugged by the mother in the womb, 
right? We, we come into the world in this place of extreme connection. And uh, we believe as Christians, we're called out of the world into a place of extreme connection, of heaven, right? Heaven is the communion of, of, of the saints. It's not a place of, uh, of being a hermit with God. It's a place of we're all being together with God in, in a more intimate communion. You know, the church actually teaches that, that marriage is from death till we part. Uh, and that's not because marriage is bad, so it's not in heaven. It's because the relationship that we'll have in heaven transcends what we're capable of here on earth. So in a, in a way, every relationship we'll have in heaven uh, will be more connected than what we possibly could be with our spouse. Uh, so the old passes away because the new is beyond what we're capable of here. In our body, we're literally wired for connection with one another. A lot of people who research the history of humanity um, find that, that humanity has been tribal, meaning that we, we, we came together, uh, we formed packs to survive, to thrive together. And, and so these, these social instincts we have to be connected with one another are, are core to human nature and the functioning of our body, to the point where scientists have discovered cells in our brain, they call them mere neurons, where when we're... F- uh, socially interacting with one another, our brains are literally changing and coming to this mirror state with one another. We're made to sort of sync up with one another neurologically. And uh, if you go back to uh, ep- season one of Physically Spiritual, I had an episode called The Tiger in the Inbox. And in there, I talked about polyvagal theory. Right? This is the, the theory of, of the, um, the hierarchy of our uh, safety response and danger response. So one of the key things that brings us to a, a place of safety with someone else is called neuroception. Our, our nervous system is wired to perceive safety or danger in other people. And, and I'm constantly giving off nonverbal cues of safety and danger to the world around me. And then every person that I'm coming in contact with is similarly giving off these reactions of safety or danger. So I am literally wired to to uh, perceive those reactions in other people in a way that's pre-conscious, meaning these shifts are happening between safety and danger in my body in a way that I'm not aware of. And in this process of, of the perception of these states is called neuroception. It's, it's before we're actually consciously aware of it. So I'm literally wired to be regulated by the people around me. Um, it calls to mind where I'm going to start this next section on, uh, on the supernatural side of this. At the very beginning, God proclaims that it's not good for man to be alone, right? That's written in our bodies. I cannot flourish alone physically. I cannot flourish alone naturally. Uh, safety Safety can only be found in true community. Um, so we are physically wired and designed to be in communion with one another uh, from, from an, a, a physical adaptation standpoint, a neurological standpoint. And these are just a few examples. I mean, research is finding so many different ways that we're affected by the people around us um, that it's absolutely a basic part of human flourishing for us to be in relationship with one another. All right, let's look at relationship 
from the supernatural perspective now. What does God reveal to us about relationship in Revelation? Well, like I said, God created us um, in the beginning and proclaimed it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. First to note, Adam, that first human person, didn't say it's not good for me to be alone. Right? God proclaimed it, meaning that Adam had to be taught in a sense that it wasn't good for him to be alone. So God creates the animals and presents them to Adam to be named. And each one of these animals, it's not like it was a divine trial and error. Like, hmm, I wonder if a giraffe will work. Hmm, I wonder if a rhino will work. And God was like throwing them at Adam, hoping that one of them is going to make him happy. <laughs> no, no, God knew what Adam needed, but Adam had to learn that he was alone amongst the created order, one created in the image and likeness of God like he was. Um, so, so Adam is learning that it's not good for him to be alone. And then God puts Adam into a sleep and then, in a sense, separates him, pulls out his rib, and from that rib forms woman. And Adam proclaims, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? You can just imagine what he's feeling in that moment, this sense of utter, uh, of utter fulfillment and connection with the other person. And this is sometimes described as original unity, that Adam and Eve had this original place of connection, uh, this is what John Paul II had to say in a general audience in January of 1980. He says, The affirmation of the person is nothing other than welcoming the gift, which, through reciprocity, creates the communion of persons. This communion builds itself from within. This communion builds itself from within. Right? So, so Adam had this kind of interiority that the animals didn't have. Right? We, we talk about this as the faculties of reason and will. And traditionally, this is how we've understood ourselves in the image and likeness of God, that we have these higher faculties of reason and will that the rest of the created order doesn't have. Uh, so John Paul II taught that we were also in the image and likeness of God as a communion of persons. We believe in a God who is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, an, an eternal communion of love, generative love. And this is the image that we're created in, that we're called into these relationships of generative love. Uh, this is what the uh, Catechism, paragraph 2845, has to say on this. The communion of the Holy Trinity is the source and criterion of truth in every relationship. It is lived out in prayer and above all in the Eucharist. The relationship of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the source and criterion of truth in every relationship. So to the extent that my relationships reflect the image of God, reflect the love of the Trinity, that's, that's a good relationship. To the extent that that relationship is devoid of the image of God, the love of the Trinity, it's an unhealthy relationship. Um, and we see this from, from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sin, when they fall in the garden, what do they do is they hide. They literally hide from God. Adam's response is, I heard you coming, so I hid because I was afraid. Right? Now he's afraid of God, who he had this intimacy with before. And also they cover themselves with fig leaves. And they cover specifically the areas of their body that set them apart from one another. 
So now the, the outward uh, expression of their difference uh, isn't isn't a place where they find themselves in a complementary uh, love exchange, but it's a place where they now are afraid of the possibility of being used and harmed by the other person. Right? So now Adam and Eve cover themselves from one another, protecting themselves from one another. So we see right from the beginning what sin causes is division, because in that sin, their reason is darkened, their will becomes evil, and then their ability to, to resist things that are difficult is, is weak, and their ability to resist things that are attractive is, is all disordered. Right? So, so that image of God, while still there, their likeness to God is diminished as a result of their sin. And now that they're unlike God, right, they're becoming now a, a contradiction to the Trinity in their relationship— uh, they need to protect themselves to one another, so they cover themselves. All right, so how does God come into this situation to, uh, to uh, heal it? So we read in the very beginning of the Gospel of John that the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Right, That Word, the, the Logos, the original order, the hierarchy, the design— was there from the beginning, and it was through the Word that God created everything. Well, this, this very design that God had becomes one of us. Um, so in a sense, God's not imposing, reimposing the order from the outside, but God's becoming human so that uh, humanity can become like God again, to restore the likeness from the inside out. And also, God becomes one of us so that he's now able to enter a new kind of communion with us, right? God enters into relationships with us that we're compatible with. Um, so God comes to remedy this disconnection, this division, by becoming one of us to enter into relationship with us. And, and throughout the scripture, uh, God's doing this by entering into covenants with us. Covenant. A covenant is, it's like a contract but the idea of a legal contract really uh, sort of falls short of what a covenant truly is, because a, a covenant is, is a pledge of establishing right relationship. It's a pledge of establishing relationship according to God's design. So what covenant does is covenant makes family. So a, a contract, it has terms, and once the terms are fulfilled, the contract is completed. And then also, on the other hand, a contract, if the contract is broken— Right? There's some kind of penalty that goes along with that, and then the contract goes away. It's dissolved because it's been broken. A covenant isn't anything like that. We can't break the covenant. Right? There's, there's no point at which, um, like the chosen people in the Old Testament, when they were unfaithful to God, the covenant didn't go away. Right? There were consequences to them breaking the covenant. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, even when the covenant was fulfilled, it's not that the covenant was dissolved. It's that the covenant was taken to a higher pitch. So we see this growth of covenant in the Old Testament. First, with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were married. And this is the original covenant, or what John Paul II called the primordial sacrament, right? the primordial way that God reveals his design and his love to the world and gives grace to his people. So that marriage covenant then flows into a family, and that family covenant flows into a tribe, right? an extended family, 
with other people connected to it. And then that tribe grows into a nation. And then that nation eventually expands to the whole world. And this is the movement that Christ brings about, that in the new covenant, this relationship of love, this relationship of family is extended to the whole world. So when the apostles asked Jesus how to pray, he says to say, our Father who art in heaven, right? And in, in this, this covenant of love, this covenant of family that extends out into the whole world, that is the new covenant, the New Testament, what the church is, takes us to a place of transcending our nature, of, of this uh, nature being fulfilled, but also taking us beyond it. Because like I said, we are, uh, we're wired to be tribal. <laughs> we're, we're sort of wired for, for self-defense with people that we don't know, right? So, so from that perspective, a lot of the ills we have in modern society sort of make perfect sense on a biological level. Things like racism or things like nationalism, right? These other people who don't look like me, these other people who don't um, who don't follow the same rules as I do, that live in other places, that speak different languages, all of these things signal to our biology, don't trust them. <laughs> That's the way we're wired. And I'm not making excuses for any of, of these great sins in our society today. Um, you know, we need to work against all these things. But what the, what the gospel offers us is, is a, a full and rich means of achieving a human family, right? Uh, the idea of, of, I think, not being just nationalistic, not being racist, I think all these ideas that are so valuable in our modern world have their roots in gospel values uh, because I, could, I can live that reality because the whole world is now my tribe. The whole world is now my family. We have one father, and that's God, right? So, so this, uh, this grace in the new covenant allows me to transcend the way that I'm wired in order to, to, to live in, in a singular family that is the communion of the saints, that is the church. All right. So hopefully that wasn't uh, too all over the place, but we have this idea of, of that we're designed by nature to be in relationship, to be in communion, Without that relationship and communion, we break. <laughs> and then th- what, what Christ brings us in the church and in the sacraments doesn't just restore us to that communion, but also invites us to transcend it in a way that, <laughs> that we couldn't have imagined on our own. So let's now get into some practicals. I think our, our restoration of true relationship begins with our relationship with God. Remember, the the measure of true relationship is the relationship of the Trinity. So we have to come to God to be reformed in right relationship. Paragraph 2565 of the Catechism says, In the New Covenant, prayer is the living relationship of the children of God with their Father, who is good beyond measure, with the Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit. The grace of the kingdom is the union of the entire holy and royal trinity with the whole human spirit. Thus, the life of prayer is the habit of being in the presence of the thrice holy God and in communion with him. This communion of life is always possible because through baptism we have already been united with Christ. Prayer is Christian insofar as it is communion with Christ and extends throughout the church which is the body. 
it di- its dimensions are those of the of Christ's love. <laughs> the dimensions of our relationship with God is Christ's love. Uh, I could just read that again. It's great. Um, so the, the new covenant in the new covenant, prayer is relationship with God. Right? How can we r- relate to God? Remember, we receive the theological virtues in our conversion of faith, hope, and love. And this gives us the, the capacity to do something that transcends our nature, to relate to God as just how we would relate to one another. Um, so we receive this gift of God in our faith, and this is expressed in our baptism. And this baptism gives us the actual grace that corresponds to our faith. Um, so we just had an episode on baptism a couple weeks ago. I'd encourage you to go back to that if you haven't haven't listened to it yet. So by being baptized, by receiving the gifts of faith, hope, and love, we're entering into the life of the Trinity. We're becoming like God again. Our nature is being both restored and healed, and then also we're, we're being taken beyond it to become uh, not just an image of God, but an icon of God, right? Someone who, who makes God present to the world around us, becomes another Christ in the world. So this is the foundation of right relationship, is relationship with God. Um, maybe you struggle with relationships. I know I'm, I'm very naturally introverted. Um, if I was just left to my own devices, I could spend just uh, an unlimited amount of time alone in a room by myself staring at the wall. <laughs> um, it takes me about a week of being isolated to feel the natural need to talk to someone else. <laughs> right? So that's I'm pretty extremely introverted in that way, but it's an, an excessive thing because in that space, um, although I'm sort of comfortable, I'm also, uh, I'm also um, prone to a lot of different bad habits and sins and increased anxiety. Um, so maybe you struggle like me. On the other hand, some people are prone to the opposite extreme. Right? The opposite extreme is uh, that you can't live without relationship, <laughs> Um, that, that you feel like you always need someone else there, um, that you don't feel right being alone, being able to pray, being able to read, being able to meditate. Um, so so which, which other direction you are, I think the foundation of healing that is in right relationship with God, in, in prayer, in entering into not, uh, uh, not loneliness, but in entering into solitude, right? that original solitude that Adam had with God. All right, practical tip number two, listen more than you talk. Uh, But when you listen, actually listen, meaning be present. Don't just be quiet, be present. This is what uh, Robert Cardinal Seurat says in uh, The Power of Silence, a great book that I'd recommend. He says, in order to listen, it is necessary to keep quiet. I do not mean merely a sort of constraint to be physically silent and not to interrupt what someone else is saying, but rather an interior silence. In other words, a silence that not only is directed toward receiving the other person's words, but also reflects a heart overflowing with a humble love, capable of full attention, friendly welcome, and voluntary self-denial, and strong with the awareness of our poverty. The silence of listening is a form of attention, a gift of self to the other, and a mark of moral generosity. 
It should manifest an awareness of our humility so as to agree to receive from another person a gift that God is giving us. For the other person is always a treasure and a precious gift that God offers to help us grow in humility, humanity, and nobility. I think that the most defective human relationship is precisely one in which the silence of attention is absent. He really drove it home there. He says, I think that the most defective human relationship is precisely one in which the silence of attention is absent. Let's go back to that quote from John Paul II about the communion of persons. John Paul II said that the affirmation of the person is nothing other than welcoming the gift, which through reciprocity creates the communion of persons. This communion builds itself from within. Right, This communion builds itself from within, meaning when I'm approaching the other person, I'm not approaching from an interior state of fear, right, of, of doubting the other person's gift, of not trusting the other person. And on the other hand, I'm not also approaching the other person with an agenda. right? I just have a bunch of stuff that I need to say. I need to make my point. I need to fill the space. I need to be the one who's seen in whatever way. We're called to, to approach the other person with an openness of heart, a listening, right? Cardinal Seurat talks about it almost as a form of asceticism, right? That, that, that quiet listening is a, is a self-denial. It's a mortification of self. In order to receive the other, I need to not say what I want to say. And it needs to go deeper to when I'm talking to that other person, I need to not even think about what I would say. <laughs> I need to be fully attentive from the inside out. And I think this is, uh, this is essential, <laughs> obviously. Um, so let's apply this in a couple different situations. Let's think of the off-incriminated mode of communication in our world, social media, right? Are you truly listening on social media, right? When you, when you read someone else's post, are you trying to enter into the mystery of that person or do you instantly just react, it's actually a medium, a mode of communication. It doesn't lend itself easy to the, easily to this kind of communion, right? It's designed to give us more of a surface-level connection. Um, so, so it takes effort to enter into it in this kind of meaningful way. But when you read that post, do you ask yourself, what does this say about that person's heart, right? What's this person trying to express? Um, who is this on the other side, and what are they trying to reveal about themselves by saying this, right? Can, can I enter into the mystery of the other person when I'm engaging in social media? Another place, when we're just interacting with uh, acquaintances or perfect strangers in public, whether it be uh, the waiter or waitress at a restaurant or the, the teller at your bank or the person that you just happen to walk into the elevator with at the same time, right? In those moments, do I encounter that person or am I just encountering my internal fear and discomfort? Right? Do, I, do I truly uh, maybe ask them a sincere question of who they are or how they are? Uh, do I look them in the eye and encounter them, or do I just look at their body, either evaluating their clothes or, or maybe uh, trying to scan them if, if they're safe or not, or maybe I'm objectifying them sexually or, or something else like that? Right? Am I truly encountering a person, or am I just encountering uh, you know, my own internal state, whatever it might be? 
And then finally, in our deepest and most profound relationships, whether it be in, in marriage or in a, with a best friend or, or maybe our coworkers who we're very close with, right? How do I enter into those relationships? Uh, do I just see them as a means to an end, right? As someone to help me get what I need? Or do I, do I truly approach them with an openness, hoping to be able to enter a meaningful, deep relationship with them? Uh, is, it, is it just, um, is it just uh, a relationship of pattern, right? It's so easy to get into these just habits where we have the same old boring conversations, or maybe the habit is not to have a conversation. Um, you know, do, do I enter in to the relationship as if it's ever new, right? Even though you might be married to somebody for 50 years, right? When I go out to dinner with my, with my bride, do I, um, do I ask myself, um, who is this person, right? How, what can I learn about them that I don't know? Or how can I re-encounter something about them in a deeper way uh, that I haven't accessed before? Right, so we can enter into all of our relationships with a sort of examination of conscience of, am I entering this relationship as a communion of persons? Does this follow the model of the Trinity, this model of self-giving love? Right, so I would propose a, a penance that we might take on. This is something I'm trying to do for this Lent, is that I'm trying to talk to someone every day in a vulnerable way, meaning not just um, talking about the news or sports or the weather or whatever, but to really share something. Share a fear I have, maybe a hope I have, a feeling I have, a need I have, to go deeper into a more in- intimate conversation. Because like I said, in the context of my story, um, I have this proclivity for isolation. Right? I often don't want to engage in conversation. I find it very difficult to, to bring my internal life to the outside. Right? So for me, the penance is uh, to share something meaningful. Maybe you have the opposite proclivity. Right? Maybe you're just an open book all the time. right? So maybe the penance for you is every day I'm going to have a conversation where I listen more than I talk. Right? Core to listening is asking questions. Because in a meaningful, heartfelt, well-thought-out question um, is both an, an awareness of what's going on in the other person and me expressing my attentiveness and my curiosity. Right, so so core to listening is also asking questions. So that might be another penance you might take on, right? In every conversation I have today, I'm going to ask a good question, a meaningful question. Some other ideas for living in relationship. Like I said, there's a lot of social isolation in our world today. We're we're kind of at, hopefully at the tail end of the coronavirus pandemic right now. Um, so there was an even greater social isolation where a lot of relationships are happening virtually over Zoom and over social media. Um, So one idea as we're coming out of this pandemic especially is to volunteer somewhere, right? To volunteer somewhere. It it can be awkward when you first meet someone or try to get to know someone to just, you know, plop down face-to-face with each other and start talking. (laughs) Um, You just don't know them yet. It's hard to know what questions to ask. It's it's easy to feel uncomfortable before you really know the other person because maybe it is someone you shouldn't trust, right? So so it's good to to begin to encounter people in context of shared mission, and this is what we do when we volunteer, whether it's at your your church or at the local humane society or some other nonprofit that you have a passion about. But by volunteering, it's it's loving together in imitation of Christ. It's entering into common mission. And by doing this, it, it, 
it, it, it starts us off in the context of that kind of mission mindset, of that entering into being self-gift. So going somewhere and volunteering can be a great way to break that social isolation. We also sometimes need uh, deeper relationship. And in our culture, uh, we have some context for this deeper relationship that we can find if, if we need help to overcome maybe struggles of isolation or struggles of being too out there. Um, so one secular context, hopefully, um, that you can also bring your faith into would be like mental health care with counseling or something like that. But also in our church, we have a rich and deep tradition of spiritual direction. Right? A spiritual director is someone um, who, who's seeking the Lord, hopefully is, is further advanced in the spiritual life, and also has a rich and full knowledge of the Catholic spiritual tradition. And out of that, by you revealing your soul to them, sharing about your life, they can help guide you to find God's will in your life and to follow that will. So finding a spiritual director uh, can be so helpful to break out of this isolation if you feel like you're there. Um, and if you can't find a spiritual director, just finding a regular confessor, meaning uh, that every time you go to confession, every time you go to the sacrament of penance, you go to the same priest. You go to the same person so that they know you, and you go face-to-face so that they see you, and there's this personal interaction uh, where it's not just uh, hearing the words that your sins are forgiven, but you see somebody's face as your sins are forgiven, right? And just think of when we're talking about like mirror neurons, when we're talking about our our vagus nerve, when we're talking about our nervous system, uh, the effect that that has on the body, right? we're, We're biologically wired uh, for fidelity in, in one sense, in that, that since we're uh, designed to be tribal, to be in small groups of people with the common mission of survival, uh, there's a lot of our biological wiring that incentivizes us to stay in communion with the people we know, to stay in right relationship with those people. Uh, so one of the gifts of confession is we have this regular context of being able to be restored in communion to God and to the church and also to our community. And that can be a great place of, of healing. So going to the same priest every time, even though sometimes you might need to make like an emergency confession because you just need to get something off your chest, um, can help to build that context of direction and of relationship and of guidance. All right, hopefully this first episode on the track of asceticism in season two of Physically Spiritual might have been a bit of a surprise talking about relationship. I would encourage you following up on this episode to just think of yourself, right? Where are my natural proclivities? Where is either my excess or, or maybe where is my uh, not enough in my relationships? Should I challenge myself to enter in in a more meaningful way, to seek out people, to, to try to share more? Or should I challenge myself to be quiet more, to listen, to ask good questions, uh, to encounter that mystery and not just always put myself out there? And what are some really practical things that you can do in your day-to-day life to, to mortify that, to grow in that, to be, to be ascetical toward that a natural disposition that you have, to start to heal those wounds in your heart? And by, and by being uh, clear on what that is, it can help you to live that, right? So, so like this Lent, I've actually been trying to do that, have a conversation every day that's meaningful and deep and rich. And by doing that, hoping to, to work against that, that instinct in myself to isolate. Uh, and it's hard. It's been one of the Lenten penances that I've struggled with the most in my life. It's, it's just difficult to do that every day. Um, 
So try to set up some asceticism in relationships, because by doing it, we're, we're not only uh, doing something essential for the health and flourishing of our body, but we're becoming more and more the image and likeness of God as a communion of persons. This show and all media on Awakened Catholic is made possible by the Awakened Nation and the Hollow app. The Awakened Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hollow.app slash awaken.